the beauty of words is they're not just things we use to communicate information. Every word has a history. And that history tells us so much about why they were born, what they did for us, and what they capture and tell us about our past. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to The Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Calling all word nerds. If you are like me and love thinking about words, talking about words, the origins of words, how we use words. This episode is guaranteed to delight. I am the host of the Author's Corner, Robin Colucci, and today I am delighted to introduce you to Dr. Valerie Friedland. Now, Valerie Friedland is a professor of sociolinguistics and former director of graduate studies in English at the University of Nevada in Reno, an expert on the relationship between language and society. Her work has appeared in numerous academic journals and scholarly collections. She is the co-author of the book Sociophonetics and lead editor of three volumes on Western States English. She writes regularly for the popular Grammar Girl podcast. Her language blog, Language in the Wild, is featured on Psychology Today, and her lecture series, Language and Society, is available from the great courses. She's also working on her first book for a popular audience on all the speech habits we love to hate that is being published by Viking Penguin. She gives talks for organizations ranging from the Serbian Ministry of Culture and Journalism.uk to Charles Schwab and Ivy Exec. She also regularly appears on podcasts and news programs such as The Elegant Warrior, The Mentor Project, The Lisa Show, CBS News, and Newsies The Why. And today, Valerie will share with us really unlock some of the mysteries around popular words in our language today, how they got there, some obsolete words and what happened there, as well as some of the latest creations of our younger generations and some of the clever directions that our language is going thanks to youthful creativity. So again, this is a really fun episode, and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed interviewing Valerie Friedland. Valerie, welcome to the Author's Corner. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you. And ever since we booked your interview, I've just been chomping at the bit because your expertise is one of my favorite topics and things in the whole world, which of course is words. Just a quick example, like in my off time, I do the New York Times crossword and the spelling bee on the New York Times exercise. (laughs) Are you also a Wordle addict? You know, I'm afraid to start Wordle because if I do, I'll never work. (laughs) Wordle is a big one with linguists. It seems like on Twitter, all the linguists in Ling Twitter post their Wordle of the day. But the nice thing about Wordle is it's a one-time shot, right? You can only do it once a day. It's a little easier to fit into your schedule. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'll keep that in mind and I'll have a new addiction by the end of the day. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) So as I mentioned to you before, like I was uh, perusing your column on psychology today and sort of shopping for out of all the amazing things we could talk about, what was really standing out to me. And the first thing that really jumped out to me was your article on pronouns. And actually, you talked about pronouns in a few different articles. And I didn't catch anything, though, around the latest development in pronouns, which 
you know, of using they. One and of my just, favorite you know, topics. Yeah. So, and I believe it was the Chicago Manual of Style 17th edition where they actually acknowledged that it's legitimate to use a plural pronoun with a singular verb. So talk to me a little bit, talk to us. <laughs> I know it's just, it's all about me today, Valerie. I know, exactly. Well, see, there you are. You're perfect. You're just exemplifying multiple pronouns. <laughs> so yes, tell us about they. Okay, well, I mean, pronouns as a rule are so fascinating. I mean, I I have, so they is also a personal favorite of mine, and I have a lot to say about that because actually they is a chapter in my upcoming book. I have a whole chapter on not just they, but the evolution of English pronouns and how they fits in and why they is actually not as revolutionary as we think it is and sort of why it will get widespread acceptance and I think why it's become so popular. But just to backtrack and talk about pronouns, just as a thing, a phenomenon, they really are an amazing creation. And we don't really know much about the history of pronouns because we tend to think of the moment that we're in and we don't look back and think, oh, you know, a thousand years ago, what were our pronouns doing? Because we think pronouns have been here forever. And one of the reasons we have so many problems with they in terms of accepting it and also using it in sentences is because we feel like, okay, well, they has a certain way it's always been used. Well, actually, they doesn't. And they was not even the original pronoun in the history of English. In old English, the pronoun system was all based around a paradigm of he, which was spelled usually H-I at the time, and it had different case and different plurality, actually quite a bit different than what we have today. And things were different forms of the pronoun he. And the way you would say they back in that day was something more like heo. When it was in the nominative, which would be the subject case, or hem in the objective Ah, case. So what's really interesting is, you know, when we say go get them? Yeah. That M is actually a derivative of hem, not of them. Oh, interesting. They coexisted till about the 1600s. And in fact, in Chaucer, you see him mixing it up, sometimes using the old English heo for subject case, and then he would use them in the object case. So he was already trying to bring in a little of the two different paradigms, but they were actually a mixture and hem is where we actually get M from. So this idea that they has to be one thing and it shouldn't change is based only on our present moment and not at all on our pronominal past. So pronouns have changed throughout time. We don't say thou and thee anymore because pronouns change. So one of the things about pronouns is that they're not what they used to be. And that's a good thing because they've evolved to meet the needs of the speakers. So the whole reason we switched from the thou, thee system to the you system is based on a realignment of status between speakers as we moved from the 1600s to the 1800s. And we went from a very sort of high status, low status relationship where everybody knew their place and it was all based on rank and you only spoke as your rank would allow you to. And so if I were lower rank, I would have called you thou and you was a higher status approach. So, you know, if I was talking up, I'd say you, if I was talking down, I'd say thou. Well, what happens, we started to be more equal. Middle-class started to rise up and they became more popular, more prevalent, and the status differences started to eradicate. So we switched from saying thou to people less than us to saying you to everybody because you didn't really know who someone was. They might end up being someone that would boss you around later. So we have changed our pronouns for time eternal, and they is just another step on that road. So I think it's really funny how upset people get about the grammar with they, because our grammar is exactly what has caused these changes for the last thousand years in our pronouns. It has evolved and changed because of the needs of speakers socially affect the grammatical system or morphosyntactically. And so that's just evolution. In high school, having to write my first term papers, right? And how annoying I found it, the sort of supposedly gender neutral way was to say he, right? So he who, right? right? And that was 
as a female, right? <laughs> Somebody who identified right. as she, like I always felt that that was so awkward and problematic, way more so than they. They, which honestly we've all been doing, right? And when we talk to each other, we so often use they in a non-gender specific context, mm -hmm. but we don't even notice it. And I think what happened is it's that that switch from speaking to writing that partially prompted sort of the uproar. It's also the switch from using it in places where you had a non-definite subject or antecedent it was referring to, to something that had a proper name. So if you had a sentence that had a proper name, like John or Sally or Sue, having a non-binary pronoun refer back to a person whose gender on the surface might be one way or another, is harder for people to get used to because there's a clash in our grammar system where we mark for gender. And that's right. probably part of what we do when we're actually computing sentences is we're trained to mark for gender. So we're kind of having a clash if we've been sort of taught since we've been very little to mark our pronouns for gender. And we base that on sort of the appearance of gender rather than people's feelings about their own gender or non-binary position. So you know, it's a really complex reason well, why it we like find it a, problematic. But it seems like there was a very short time where that was even a thing. Because when everybody was just he, we weren't really marking for gender because we were just marking for the masculine side. Well, you know, actually, if you look back through documents and read up on some of the history of pronouns, you find that actually this struggle to represent all people in our pronouns has been around since the 14, 1500s. And in fact, oh. <laughs> you would find that they surfaced as a response to that, but it was no more liked back then than it is today. Oh, right, wow. the social cultural context about why we were using them might have changed, but the idea that we didn't have pronouns to represent everybody has been in our language for hundreds of years. And they was a solution even back in 15, 1600. It wasn't a solution that was favored. And in fact, there was even legislation in Britain and in the United States to force he to be the true generic pronoun. But as anybody who's ever been in school knows, if someone tells you to do something, you're going to do the complete opposite. So that was pretty much dooming it to fail from the get. <laughs> but you know, my least favorite version was S slash he. Right. The she, he type thing. Yeah. The he. Yeah. <laughs> I know there have been so many different ways to try to solve it. And I think they is actually the most organic way, which is why it has stuck, right? Because there's so many other ways we've done it. And saying she or he is so clumsy and awkward. Yeah. I've never liked using that one. I've used they quite a bit in my writing for years. Um, in fact, you were talking before we got on about the words of the year and yes. they has been featured many times in the words of the year i think it was 2010 it was the word of the year and then in 2019 i believe it was the word of the decade oh, and okay. because it had start, sort of shifted from being something that was in 2010 the new novel way to say things right mm -hmm. by 2020 it had become accepted in so many style manuals and usage guides where it had never tread before and so that was a momentous occasion for a word yeah. to get that to that point in the 17th edition of the chicago manual because that was true if it's changed in the chicago manual which for our listeners is the standard for the, the Bible. Industry. It is the Bible, right? No self-respecting editor tries to attempts to work without having the Chicago manual at hand. And so for them to accept that, that you could have the they pronoun with a singular verb was really sealed the deal, if you will. Right. Absolutely. And so I think that's what we were marking when the American Dialect Society voted to make it word of the decade, just because words come and go and some become very important, but few are so important that usage guides change because of it. So that was certainly something we needed to note in our annual vote. Okay, so I have to ask you, and I'm going to totally botch this, but I'm going to try to because I could not figure out how to pronounce this word. Okay, this is terrible. I, I may not be able to help you on that one. <laughs> 
It was one of the words of 2021 that it was a Gen Z word about something that was not started with a C-H, I think. Oh, Chuggy? Chuggy. When do you think Chuggy's going to make it into the Chicago Manual? That one might have a (laughs) bit more of a climb. Yes. I think it's actually that. So from what my children tell me, that's a word that's kind of a has-been word. So now it's already, you know, oh, that's so so old. That's so last year. It's so last year. Yeah. So, yeah. So talk to us a little bit about this whole idea of the word of the year, because some of the words I found that you listed for 2021 were quite amusing too. Yes. This is all actually one of my favorite parts of our annual conference. So every year, the Linguistic Society of America and the American Dialect Society have a joint meeting. Actually, there are a number of other sister societies that go alongside as well. And it's the biggest annual gathering of linguists on the planet, which you can imagine has a lot of interesting conversations going on, most of which revolve around martinis and words. (laughs) It can be very dangerous. Right. It's a very serious conference. We do a lot of actual research and presentations, and it's a very prestigious conference to be presenting at. But the American Dialect Society, which has been around since the late 1800s with the goal of preserving, well, actually of recording and preserving Americanisms and American speech. And it was really born out of the idea that we were no longer part of Britain and that American speech had come in on its own. So it wanted to celebrate American language. And a lot of what it did in the early times was document new words that had become featured, either they had new usage in America that they hadn't carried before, or they were completely new forms. So that was the goal. And to continue that goal, every year we sit around one evening during this meeting and we have the word of the year vote. The nomination period is several months up to the vote and people can send in their nominations. A lot of times, a lot of us poll our students because I'm very unhip. Right. Um, <laughs> and in fact, my children cringe when I actually try to pull new words out of them. They run screaming. <laughs> so generally, I don't get a lot of help from my kids, but my students actually in the fall when I teach sociolinguistics, we have a word of the year vote in the class and where they come up with ideas and then we pick one to nominate. Very so you good. nominate it by saying what the word is, give an example of its use and explain why it's momentous that year. Like what is special about it that specific year? And it's usually things that either reflect social or cultural shifts or have something to do with some political or economic event or pandemic would be a big one lately that happened that year. So it has to be somehow tied to that year. It doesn't have to be an entirely new word, but something that's relevant for some reason that year. Like, as I recall, I think insurrection was the word of Insurrection was the word of the year this year, absolutely. And because that was one of the biggest events that had happened in the year. But the prior year was, of course, all COVID words because that was the year of COVID because it's for the year previous. So the 2020 would have been 2019, right? That kind of thing. So yes, COVID featured prominently last year, but then we were like, okay, we're done with COVID. Let's move on. And so we did things related to COVID a lot this year. So that were related to work or changes in yeah. our lifestyle. Talk about some of the words related to work because that <laughs> I loved hard pants. Yes, hard <laughs> pants was actually one of the most useful. I think it was, in fact, voted most useful because <laughs> we are slowly returning to hard pants, which are in opposition to soft pants like sweatpants that we have all lived in for the last two years. So this was the year of the beginning of the return to hard pants, which is essentially <laughs> pants with a button that no one wants to sit in. They're hard. They're hard to wear. So hard <laughs> pants, unfortunately, made a comeback. And I think that was our most useful term because it describes described how we all felt about returning to work uh, outside of our houses, which some of us have not. And the other work-related new words were ones related to the great resignation. So that was the anti-work movement, (laughs) right? And the great resignation came up several times. Anything that was talking about the fact that we are now shifting how we live our lives and how work fits into that. Those were words that exemplified those movements. So it's really
really not about the word. It's about what inspires the word and how that is a reflection of the social and cultural moments of our time. And so it's really fascinating when you look back 20 years ago at the words of the year, because what you can see is not that we had interesting word choices, but that we had interesting things happening in that year. And those words summed up the emotion, the political climate, the social climate in a way that was worth preserving. All right. So since I happen to know you have a list nearby, share with us some of the words. Do you have from 1992 or where? I do. So the early I have from 1994, which was sort of a not as fascinating as some of the later ones, because year obviously didn't have all that much going on. But one thing that I think is interesting is the word of the year was a tie between cyber and here it's described as pertaining to computers and electronic communication, which sounds so funny now because everybody knows what cyber is. But in 1994, which actually wasn't that long ago, but we didn't really know them. I mean, computers weren't that prominent in our lives. And email and things like that hadn't really started to be used. So this was a big thing at the time. It was just starting to emerge. And then the other one was morph to change form. That Wow. That was the word of the year. Oh, yes. Those were the ties. And then the most promising word, which I think is hysterical because it obviously didn't go, it wasn't very promising in terms of using that word is the info bond to refer to the internet. Oh my, and what did they, Infobon, like the Autobon? Yes, like the Autobon. It was the Infobon. What I love is this shows the novelty of the internet at the time and how we were so young in our relationship to it that all these things were possibilities. And now we laugh because these are either cyber so old hat, right? It doesn't even sound new anymore. It seems crazy to think people didn't know it. And Infobon, who uses that, right? But at the time, things were all You're saying that reminded me that it was referred to around that time as the information superhighway. Yes, yes, exactly. I remember that. And that was, of course, only two at the time. (laughs) I remember it more directly, Valerie. (laughs) No, no, unfortunately, I did too, but... (laughs) My son wasn't born yet, but he was on the way. Uh (laughs) And I was, yeah, so he's 26 now. So he was... Uh No, I guess he was born then. Yeah, he must have been. I'm terrible at math. Well, I think I actually was Um, at this meeting because this was when I was in graduate school. And most of these I remember because I've been at almost every one of these meetings, except the last two years they were on remote status. So I haven't been in person the last two years. I'm hoping that this next year when it's held in Colorado, I will be there in person and I'll be happy to give a full report of our new words. But Here's one that's also funny from 1994. It was voted as the most useful. And this one definitely sums up our political climate at the time. Gingrich, to deal with government agencies, policies, and people in the matter of U.S. House Speaker Newt Gingrich. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Isn't that funny? And the most trendy word at that, that year was a dress down day or a casual day, which is described as a work day. Employees are allowed to dress casually. So wow. these things, you know, this is a number of years ago, right? But these seem like they've been around forever, but this shows you, right? These were new concepts, new, new ideas that were exciting at the time. And therefore we commemorated them with new vocabulary. And that's the beauty of words is they're not just things we use to communicate information. They are, every word has a history. And that history tells us so much about why they were born and what they did for us and what they capture and tell us about our past. And as you were sharing about the Infobon, I was thinking about, it just got me thinking, got my juices going, thinking about even just the evolution of the word to describe the internet, right? Like <laughs> information superhighway, internet, interwebs, right? World Wide Web, interwebs. I mean, you know, there's, and it just kind of goes on. Right. You find nuances in it, right? And now we have the dark web, right? Dark and we have all these different spinoffs from this original source. So yeah, it's crazy. crazy. The other thing that occurs to me is there's been so many new verbs created, like, I'm going to Google that. (laughs) Or Twitter tweet. Or tweet that. Or Or how about adulting? 
adulting, (laughs) which I know irritates a lot of people. But the funny thing about our little pet peeves with language is we've been doing this for a thousand years. Half of what you say, in fact, more than half of what you say went through the same process as all the things that annoy us today. So, you know, a lot of things became new verbs over time. And that's how language evolves. It's not always just, it's really actually rare to just come up with new words out of nowhere. Words usually get morphed, to use a word of the year from 1994. They morph morph from being maybe one type of word that we use in one specific context and maybe as one part of speech to broader word that might describe more things and be used in more context. And a perfect example of this is the word like. Mm. Like as a word has been in the history of English for almost a thousand years, but obviously not the like that we talk about today. But at the time, it was mainly a verb and an adjective when it first entered the language. Then slowly it starts to get used like we used Google in different contexts or like we're doing adulting. It started to get used in different contexts and then it shifted to become those parts of speech. So you got like as a conjunction where it conjoined two sentences. And then you get like as a preposition where it actually introduces noun phrases and things like that. And then gradually you get like as a discourse marker. So, you know, when we started using like as a conjunction, people did not like that. People actually, you can find it ridiculed and made fun of. And just think actually, when we say it feels like, or I pretend like, or it seems like, we say those as a matter of course today, but a hundred years ago, those were considered crass and vulgar, right? Mm -hmm. So the reason that we get upset about things is simply because they're new and we don't like them because they're not what we are used to. And we've learned from our teachers and our parents not to do it that way. But everything we're saying was that way at one point, right? It shifted, it changed, it morphed into how we use it today. And so adulting is a great example of that. Right. Which I actually think, I love that. I love that. (laughs) I think it sums up. I mean, the reason the words come into existence is because we didn't have something that sufficiently expressed the concepts we're trying to get across. All right. So I I want to share a word that I have this against, and maybe you can help me find a way to love it. (laughs) What is it? Doable. Doable. So doable bothers you. Doable. I can say it, but I don't like to write it. (laughs) Well, you know, some words, yeah, I can see it, but some words are really more informal, spontaneous speech. And I, I think that's what we get confused by is writing and speaking are two different things. And, you know, you're born speaking, but you're not born writing. We have babies that babble, but we don't have babies that scribble. Right. Right. So it's okay. It's okay to have things that only belong in speech and don't belong in writing. So, you know, if you don't like that word in writing, that there's no problem with that. And we do tend to expect more standard usage in writing. And the reason for that is not because we're more perfect when we write words. It's because the whole purpose of writing is different than speaking. The whole purpose of writing is preservation, right? It's to be able to transmit what you say, transmit an idea over time and space. And if language changes too much, that becomes more problematic because, you know, none of us are reading Beowulf anymore. So that's why it started as a preservation. And then that idea of preservation for the purpose of having it historically became misconstrued as it being more pure or better, which is honestly linguistic bullshit. (laughs) So it's okay that you don't like doable as long as you feel okay saying it. Yeah. Okay. But if I didn't feel okay saying it, how would I like (laughs) (laughs) the truth comes out? Well, okay. So think about the suffix able. What other words come up? It's doable, it's believable. Yeah, I guess it has a maybe that's why I have such a complicated relationship with it because it is useful. I have to admit it's useful. And and it's doing what it's supposed to. It's retrieve like retrievable every time I another way of saying I can do that. Yes. It is. But all it is. And think about it. reserves the volunteering. Like if you say it's doable, you're not necessarily committed 
which is kind of helpful. Uh, yeah, yeah, that you're right. not doing it. Yeah, well, see, then I think your problem with that is more when people are using it, they're putting the work on somebody else rather than the actual word itself. So that's a context yeah, problem, yeah, not a okay. word problem. Okay. Right, right. Because I mean, if you think about the suffix able, it's doing its work, right? Because it's yeah. a if you look at believable, retrievable, right? Doable, all of those are verbs to which it's attaching. And it's following the rules. It's not a rule violator. So there's no reason why that word will upset you. But what you're describing is the context in which it's used usually results in you doing more work. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you can help help you with that one. (laughs) What if you ever need another job, which I know you never will, but you could be a linguistic therapist. (laughs) I feel like I am that already. (laughs) I can't tell you how many people come up to me. And in fact, it's the funny thing is in this book I'm writing, that's actually almost done. It will come out in about a year. I I tell our listeners just out of from your mouth to their ears, tell them the title so they know to look for it. Well, okay. So the title is not yet approved completely of the food chain, but right now, and I think I love this title. I hope that, you know, publishers do what they want with your book. So, but it's called, I hate when you say that. Yeah. Which I I love what I was saying. It's my there. I have been a therapist because the reason I, I titled my book that is because I would give talks and I would talk about something like your vowel movements, which are fascinating. And I, I <laughs> vowel with a V, just if anybody's listening, please know <laughs> V vowels. I studied, it's fascinating. There's fascinating vowels out there. And I will give a talk on vowels and I'll have people doing vowel tests and we'll have all sorts of fun. And then every single time I get done talking about vowels, I have a lineup at my at the podium afterwards to ask me questions about things people hate. <laughs> so they're all like, well, make me feel better about my daughters like you. So tell me why I hate the word doable or <laughs> you know, here's my personal favorite. Can you tell people they shouldn't be using irregardless? You know, I am the therapist. It's so funny. People, people come to me as if I'm going to fix their language problem. So I feel like that is a role I already have, except I'm not getting paid for it. So maybe I should oh, switch around. I apologize for, you know, I feel like that annoying person at the party. Who oh, finds- no, no. I mean, I'm laughing because yeah, the reason like, I wrote that book is to answer all these questions. It's fa- oh, I I the language is such a wonderful <laughs> resource that we really don't understand. We spend so much time talking without knowing where our talk came from or why we have feelings about it the way we do that. It stuns me. We don't teach linguistics in school. You know, right. I mean, a lot of people have grown up without ever taking a linguistics class. And once you understand how language works from a scientific perspective, it changes your whole view of everything we do. So my mission is to get out there and help people understand that. So I actually love to be the language therapist. And actually, I should call, maybe that's my name, the language therapist. Maybe that's, what I'll, maybe that's what I'll go by. But you know, Dr. it is Valerie. It's so interesting because it really does, like as I'm listening to you, it really does show you something about who you are as far as like how you react to certain words or certain usage of certain words. Language is incredibly social, right? And it's incredibly loaded with these ideas and these ideologies that we have. And it can be very destructive, right? I mean, this is one of the biggest issues is our beliefs about language, even though a lot of them are erroneous in terms of what we assigned to words without knowing the reality, the linguistic reality behind it, it can be very detrimental to people, to speakers that use those words or use those different types of dialects. But it can also be fun and funny. And so I want to never lose sight of that because all of us have thought of things and laughed, right? All of us have brought up things people say or we say and laughed about it and wondered about it. And so it's a joyful topic. And I'm just very lucky to be able to help tell its story. Out of the young people. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying, I'm just like, oh my God, how horrifying that I'm saying the young people and I'm not. <laughs> but really, I think they're so creative. It's amazing, incredibly creative. And really, the root of all language change has always started with the young. And that's, of course, why we hate them so much, right? I mean, we put a lot of our own angst about language on young people when really they're the ones that gave us the language we speak today. And we were once young and we did the same thing. So the way language moves forward is really through the speakers 
of a certain age and it's not our age (laughs) 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 to put it in a more polite way. And, you know, that's the way it should be, right? Because if you think about life experience, the time when you are most innovative with language is the time when you have the least constraint on you from a social perspective so that you're not tied to one way you think language should be which is what happens to us when we get older and we have jobs and we have children and various things like that. And we live in the white picket fence houses where we are more conformist in our attitudes and our beliefs. When we're young, we're in school with people from all walks of life. We have the most intense diversity that we're ever going to be around at that stage in our life. What we think is cool is very different, right? So, I mean, if you think about who you think is cool now, it's probably a totally different type of cool than when you were 15. So the types of people and things we think are cool at 15 are the things that drive language. So we're open to innovative use of language and the people that are driving language forward are usually the ones on the margins of society, right? They're not the people that we are going to look up to and kind of try to talk like when we're going to be CEOs of a company, because those are boring people, right? Those are people that are (laughs) trained by what they believe language should be rather than open to the options that language provides them. And when people don't have a lot of social constraints that force them to speak a certain way, we're creative, we're innovative, we're new and novel. And unfortunately for most of us at our age, we're less new and novel. (laughs) What? That doesn't mean we can't use it. I know you're going to go around saying chuggy for the rest of the day. Right. Well, actually define chuggy for our listeners because I don't think they... Chuggy means like caught in the 80s, basically. (laughs) Of course, I picked that one out. Yeah. (laughs) One of the ones that I remember I found particularly amusing is that, and this might already be passe, it probably is, but what the first time... If you're saying it, I'm sure it is. That's how I feel if I'm saying it. It's time I heard one of my kids say, yeah, that's fire. And I was like, what the? And then when they explained it, I'm like, oh, we used to call that cool. Yes. Yeah. That's fire. (laughs) Yeah. Or there's like, it's like the opposite. Yeah. Straight fire. That's fire. It's, they still say fire. I have actually heard it. I have teenagers. So I have heard it come out of their mouths. But then my problem is I hear my children say it and I'm like, wait, 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 tell me more about that. And then they flee. flee. Yeah. (laughs) Fire is old. It's been around for a while. They don't think of it as new, but they do say that's fire, meaning that's really hot. That's amazing because it's like hot like fire, right? Yeah. It took a while for me to get that. And another one I love is one of my team members who's in her mid twenties. I said something and she agreed that that was true, but she just goes, facts. Right, right. Okay. I love that, but I am just not cool enough to use it. But I know. Well, that's the problem. It doesn't come naturally and it's really hard. It's my my daughter. It sounds like you're trying too hard if you say (laughs) I have that problem. I might know the words, but I can't use them. And my students find this endlessly entertaining. And so every year when I teach social linguistics, I have them all pick a word or a feature. So, you know, a lot of times linguists study features, not just words. So when I say feature, I mean things like the little choices we make in how we present things that in opposition to other things. So a feature might be something like future tense, how I say future tense. Very few of us say, I will do this anymore. We say, I'm gonna, right? I'm oh, gonna right. do it. So that's a linguistic feature. It has an alternative realization. Or whether you say walking versus walk-in, right? That's a sociolinguistic variable. So we call those individual features. But anyway, I have them pick one and they have to go through the history and they have to pick some academic articles and present it to the class. And they love to pick novel features. And this year I had a student go low key, pick low key, which for you and me, we've heard before because, you know, you can be low key. Right. They use it completely differently. And every time I try, it just ultimate fail. It's so (laughs) awful. So they would say something like, I'm low key thinking that I might not go. Right. And that would be actually, that's probably not even a very good use. They even say sometimes like he was low key hitting on me. Oh, so it's like kind of. It can be, but then they can use it where it doesn't even mean kind of. It's just this crazy revolutionary way of using low key. (laughs) So because it's a word that we actually know, right? Right. It feels sort of like it's the same, but it's completely different. 
And you can also use high key that way, but I was high key stressed out about that. But it's not as prevalent as low key. So my daughter and I drive her to volleyball a few hours away and I always take one of her teammates. And so listening to the two of them talk in the back is hysterical. So they'll be talking, they'll be like, Loki this and Loki that and Chewy this and, you know, fire this and all that stuff. And so I'm like, wait, 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 tell me more, tell me more. And then they just shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So it it has to be natural or else it's really, it's hard for it to come out. So that's part of the problem for people that are not speakers of that language of that of the new terms that to do the analysis that we need to understand how to use it appropriately you have to find a willing participant (laughs) (laughs) not your children not your children no no i think most linguists can tell you when they were little it was great because you could observe their language without them knowing what you were doing right and so you know i always love to mark my children's stages of language acquisition when they were little bitty because there's some very interesting patterns to child language acquisition but once they figured out i was was doing they were out of there <laughs> they were out of there and i think i recall there were a couple of words that had kind of come out of tiktok that made it to the yes you know i'm unfortunately i don't have that printed out because i don't know no, but there was one that was like a no bones a bones or no bones day yeah yeah oh i love that about the dog and yeah that's tell- about a dog that was i guess it was some guy that would post on his dog pictures of the dog on TikTok, and if the dog got up in the morning that meant it was a bones day it was a good day if the dog didn't get up it was a no bones day <laughs> Just a day to stay in bed, which worked out pretty well for the pandemic, I think. That was one of my favorites. That didn't win. So we usually have roster of nominees that have been put forth. And then there's a meeting the night before that whittles them down to like four or five in each category, because there are a lot of categories. There's most likely to succeed, most colloquial, you know, most offensive, right? Those kinds of things. There's always a few words you don't want your children to hear. And I know that personally because I used to bring my kids and I'd end up like this for most of the time, right? right, right. Especially uh, in the most defensive. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, and then there's my phone saying hello oh, too. Hello, phone. <laughs> so, all right, I have to ask you one more question. And actually, I have two more questions for you. Okay. I cannot believe how quickly this hour is just sailing by. I could do this all day. Oh, my goodness, but, you're um, right. I know. I'm just, I looked at the clock. I'm like, whoops. So, but I have to ask you. Do you have, and I know this is really unfair, but in this moment, what is your favorite word? I know oh it probably, gosh. or That's, any of your favorite Yes, words. that, you know, I would have to say, I do think soft pants is my favorite word rather than <laughs> soft pants because I have really enjoyed that aspect of the pandemic and that I really use that word a lot. So you know how you hear words and you may not actually take them into your speech. And I hear a lot of new words in my, I have the good fortune to be around young people all the time who actually want to talk to me, unlike my teenagers. And so I hear a lot of new words, but I like both soft pants. And then the other one is spill the tea. Oh, what is right? So tea means gossip. Oh, I love that. And so my daughter will often say like, and we were talking the tea and blah, 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 blah. Or I need you to spill the tea. So that means tell me, spill the tea. Tell me, tell me what's going on. So I always thought that was a pretty creative one. And I can actually use it sometimes, right? I've been able to adopt that one into my own speech. So I'll tell my daughter when she's had a rough day, I'm like, okay, spill the tea. What's going on? Yeah. There's so many layers to that. Yes. Yes. It's great. You think of the old tradition of ladies tea and what do you think was going on there? Uh, Well, that's exactly (laughs) right. That's exactly it. It, It's related. That's what I love about words. That one just cuts through centuries of culture. That's what I love. There's so, I mean, if you just knew the secrets that the words you say held and not just this, the words (laughs) that we said forever, the new words, like they're so fascinating. So in one of my chapters is on the word dude, you might think nothing of that word, but actually dude is one of the most fascinating words of our time. And it's been around for hundreds of years and it has flipped meaning completely. I mean, it is started as a completely different meaning than it has now, but it tracked such interesting social cultural change that now once you understand what it means today and you understand what it meant before, and I'll keep that a secret, you have to read my book. You will be like, oh yeah, okay, now I totally see that evolution. 
But when kids go around calling each other dude, which they do all the time, and actually I use it. I have a colleague I write with all the time and our emails all start with dude, guess what? <laughs> or dude, what's up? Right? It's such a useful word that it's fascinating once you understand why it has all those that meaning, right? We use it because it means something to us. And I don't know if you've ever seen that commercial that's all dude. Have you seen that one where all the man says in the whole commercial? Oh, yes. Dude. Dude. Yeah, I have seen that. Yeah. Right. Where he's saying so little, but saying so much. Right. The reason it says all that is because of all these different layers of history that we've laid down that we still understand at some level. Wow. So, I mean, it's it's fascinating. I'm excited to tell people about these stories because they're so fun, right? They're so, but not only fun, they're also telling of who we are as a people, right? Who we identify with, why we need these words to say the things we do, and how come we believe the things we believe so strongly. I mean, there's so much in that. Wow. I'm just thinking like, it's like each word has its own DNA, like it has its own genetic code that is built upon all these different iterations and uses over, in some cases, centuries. That's right. Well, and and think about words with women, especially. So you think about words that we've learned to talk about women. That's why they're so offensive in many cases, because it's not that word. It has nothing to do with a word itself. It's about the history of that word and how it has been used over time. And that's why it's powerful or that's why it's hurtful, right? It's not about the word itself. And that's what we don't understand when people complain about people calling things and then other people say, it's just a word. It's not just a word. That's BS because if it was just a word, you wouldn't use half the words you use, right? We use words, we use language to say so much more than the informational message of what we're getting across. They have meta messages. And those meta messages sometimes are unintentional because we don't know the history, but a lot of times they're intentional and they're easy ways of being discriminatory without ever acknowledging that that's what you're doing, right? So, you know, that's where with like renaming of things, like, you know, changing the word squaw, for example, Mm -hmm. if you know how that word was used, if you look at histories of squaw, the word squaw, it was used to really be offensive and sort of instill these beliefs about Native American women being sort of sexually promiscuous and loose, which were absolute fallacies, of of course. But would you want a street that was called whore? Right? Right. right. Or something like that. No, you wouldn't. So, I mean, for people that know that history, even if you don't, it's hurtful. Sure. Sure. Right. So, there's so many different layers to what this type of thing means, but every word does have its history. Yeah. And even on the other side, that's what I love about thesaurus because those nuances can make such a difference in how well you communicate what you're trying to say because there can just be this ever so slight difference in the nuance that literally eliminates the need for a hundred extra words to explain what you really mean if you can just pick the right word. Right, exactly, exactly. It's sort of like emojis on our words, right? They have <laughs> emotional valences. Actually, you were asking earlier about one of my favorite new words, and another one is perfect because it says so much, and that's the period when you say, and that's all I wrote, period, that's called period T, right? And and when it's written, it's written period T. And it is a very, very good example of a, I mean, it's not even a word really, but now it's a word, right? Of the way something has evolved from being a punctuation mark to being an emotional statement. Right. 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 So you said, I'm not going there, period. Right. Right. It's it's communicating so much with mm-hmm. a punctuation mark, right? So that's a case where we've taken something we wrote and put it in and reinvented it in the way that we talk. And, and really what we tend to call novelty in language is often reinvention. Yeah. Where we take something and we make it a little bit different for a different meaning. Oh, this is so great. This has been so great. I have to go to our last question, even though, like I said, You'll never run out of uh, interest on this mind here. (laughs) My signature final question is, what question did I not ask that you would love to answer? Oh, that's a really good one and a hard one a little bit. You didn't ask me the name of my fabulous dogs that were wonderfully silent through this whole thing. Well, that's Uh, that's one question. But, you know, I think you also didn't ask 
why I came into sociolinguistics or linguistics. Beautiful. Um, Let's do that one. Yeah. And that's a good, that's and a then good you can question. tell me the name of your dog. Then I'll tell you the name <laughs> of my dog. I have a lot of dogs, so it might take a while. We might have to save that for another talk. Okay. Um, a lot of times people ask me that question, and I think it's really telling of the same curiosity all of us have. My parents are both French native speakers, and they moved to the United States right before I was born. And so I was born here. And my father took a job at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. They had moved from Canada. My father's actually Belgian. And so here we are. And it was many years ago. I'm not saying how long ago, but let's just say it was a very different time at that time. And we moved there and we were the outsiders because my parents were not native English speakers. And even though, you know, I think people thought he was, that my family was a little exotic because in the South at the time, being French was sort of, you know, fancy. I found it really made a difference in the way that people treated me. And I often found that when I would pronounce things like my parents in second or third grade, it also would make me the subject of ridicule. I very, very clearly remember in third grade, my parents' pronunciation of words like human and huge, whereas human and huge, because they were French, they didn't have an aspirated H. And that was the way I picked it up. And I said something about humans in school and, oh my gosh, the laughter and people teased me about it. And it was very painful and hurtful. And I realized, you know, language is such a divider and a uniter. And if you're on the side of being united, it's a great thing. But for so many, it's really not. And I had a taste of being an outsider because of not even my language, but because of the language of my parents. And it just fascinated me, the social consequences of language, which most of us don't think about till we're older. And that's why I went on to study linguistics, because of that experience in third grade made me really realize the power of language. And the more I realize what language holds for us, the more I realize that was the perfect course and that we need more people that understand the power of language. So that's just a fun story, but it really, I think, tells a lot about why all of us are curious about language, because we've had experiences that make us wonder. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So true. And I think it's so wonderful how you turned a painful event into it became a curiosity that became a career. It's really inspiring. Right. Well, I was fortunate enough that the type of language background I came from was not so ridiculed that it prevented me through gatekeeping <laughs> from not being able to have that kind of success. So I recognize that, that I was very fortunate in the fact that my experience is just minor compared to what people who speak with dialects that are sort of socially or economically telling right. experience every day in ways that really keep them in positions where they can't escape from. But I was fortunate that that wasn't the case, but it did give me some insight into language at a very young age that then drove my interest. And people are rarely able to say, I saw why I wanted to become what I became in second or third grade. So I was really fortunate that it gave me an eye into a career that I think my parents really worried would pay nothing. <laughs> when you say you want to study languages, I don't think that fills your parents with hope. <laughs> Just tell them you want to be a writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I could have done worse, right? I think they probably were just happy I didn't say that. <laughs> well, I think both of us landed okay. We did all right. We did all right. Valerie, thank you so much for being here and sharing all these amazing stories and insights. Absolutely. It was so much fun. I'd love to do it again sometime. Wonderful. We'd love to have you back on The Author's Corner. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.